Good evening and welcome to the show. The era of social media has provided us with an overabundance of voices to listen to, and it can get overwhelming. It's difficult enough to keep up with the voices we agree with, let alone try to balance them with opinions from outside our preferred sources. So the last thing most of us need is for a new voice, which we are forced to listen to. And that is exactly what the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, which is so energetically promoted by the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will be. This is not just a voice, as they call it, but a giant threat to our democratic process, one which we will ignore at our enormous peril. The voice, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese assures us, will only apply to, quote, matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, unquote. Well, that check is blank enough. But consider how it will fit into our already dysfunctional parliamentary process. The people on the voice panel arrive in Canberra to demand from the government some concession regarding a mining lease or funding for some godforsaken so-called community in the Northern Territory. According to the soothing proponents of the voice, the government will be well within its rights to carefully consider the panel's demands and, if it considers it necessary, politely decline. This is because the voice will technically only be an advisory panel. But in practice, it will hold the most valuable ace in all of politics, the race card. The virtue signalers in opposition and the crossbenchers identifying a political opportunity, regardless of the price paid by the country as a whole, will immediately stamp their little feet and chant their well-rehearsed woke slogans about Indigenous oppression, while the journalists from the ABC, SBS, The Guardian and Nine dutifully assume the role of stenographers. And hey presto, the voice panel gets its way. Our parliament has already become too much of a political trading house. The Senate was intended to protect states' rights. Instead, it has become a magnet for single-issue zealots who negotiate the passage of their pet projects in return for passing other unrelated legislation they are either ill-equipped to form an opinion on or care little about. Legislation is seldom passed on merit these days. Instead, it is passed because some block of MPs has conceded to vote for it in return for political favours. This situation is bad enough, but now the Prime Minister and the Aboriginal industry are proposing to add an entirely new block of horse traders, like a permanent but unelected crossbench, making our elected members even less representative. And if you think opponents to the voice panel's advice won't be called racist, check this out. It's South Australian Liberal Senator Alex Antich politely asking Queensland Labor Senator Anthony Chisholm, who is representing the Attorney General, how people qualify as Indigenous for the purposes of this proposed panel.
Well, no, but, no, but your government minister is, is, is in the process of legislating, the, uh, or trying to legislate, taking to a referendum, one of the most important constitutional reforms of our lifetimes. And nobody can tell me well, how think, we define the category we're looking for. I think for. that's an important point you make there, that we are um, hopefully going to be legislating this one day. And as yeah, a and hopefully member you'll, of, you'll have some answers. As a member you. of parliament, um, you will have the opportunity to have input into that. Yeah, and, um, and, and so the, the, well, I would like to if there were more information, but there is. I, there, I mean, well, you, you're, what, what happens? Talking so in is, hypotheticals. No, we're not riddles. talking in hypotheticals. Um, I, I know, to, I I know what you're seeking uh, to achieve. Uh, quite frankly, um, it's borderline racist. Oh. Um, some of your questions <laughs> that you're putting is it, here. Is it, is it really? Yeah, uh, it to is. ask the question about how someone identifies and how it is that the legislation, the framework, does that in a practical... That's racist, is it? Huh? Borderline, yes. Borderline racist, the, is the, it really? The path that you're going down. Is it down. really, yeah. Um, if well, that's I mean, where you want to head, Senator Ankin... Well, I just want an answer. I mean, I, what I'm looking for Senators. is a simple Senators. answer. Senators. Um, we're here. Um, the department have given you... No answers uh, ..an answer to this. Um, it might be one, might not be one that you're satisfied. Well, it's not an answer. Um, I'm not satisfied been, with no answer. Uh, one that has been um, uh, answered by the Secretary... As Senator Chisholm inadvertently demonstrates, the voice will not resolve what little racism exists in Australia. Rather, it will weaponise it. Any practical attempt to treat Indigenous people as equal to the rest of us will become proof that the fictional sin of colonial oppression continues until, before we know it, we are as divided racially as the United States and the Prime Minister will crack lame jokes like this one. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I'm not, I, I, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Last month, Anthony Albanese said supporters of The Voice were on the side of fairness. In an address to the Chifley Research Conference, he said, quote, the voice will be a national achievement in which every Australian can share, to campaign for it, to vote for it, to celebrate its success, to play their part in an historic step forward for our country to embrace a better and fairer and more moral and more respectful future. Anyone who, for whatever carefully considered reason, votes against it, then is backwards unfair and disrespectful. You can't get much more divisive than that. My guest tonight is, like Anthony Albanese, a Labor Party luminary, but worked under the more pragmatic and unifying governments of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. Gary Johns, who was the member for Petrie in Queensland in the House of Representatives from 1987 to 1996, is now a writer with a particular interest in Indigenous affairs. He's a member of the group called Recognise a Better Way, also, also known as the Voice No Case Committee, along with Warren Mundine, John Anderson, Bob Little and Yodi Batsky, among others. And his latest book, published late last year, The Burden of Culture, looks at the formidable power of the Aboriginal industry and argues for better ways to improve the lives of our Indigenous citizens. It might also have been called the burden of white guilt, but we'll get to that in a minute. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks indeed, Fred. 
Firstly, the pamphlet published by Recognise a Better Way this week says that those who support this proposed constitutional change are often engaging in moral bullying, and they do this by saying their opponents are by definition racist. How has this gone down among ordinary Australians in your opinion? Well, I think very poorly. There's no doubt that uh, some Australians are cowed by that sort of repression. You know, if you're against us, you don't vote for yes, then somehow you're a baddie. Uh, but most Australians will say, this is not fair. We are decent people. We don't like your voice, Mr Albanese. We don't like the model. Uh, our job at Recognise a Better Way is to provide comfort to people in voting no, and that's why we've been very particular about, well, recruiting and working with Aboriginal people who have a similar view to us, which is they don't like this thing. They don't like the voice. Well, as I explained earlier, and your pamphlet also explains, the voice panel will just become another block of political advocates trading political outcomes with other MPs. Now, you say this type of negotiating rewards power but doesn't solve problems. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, so we'll have uh, 24 brand spanking new Aboriginal delegates. They're not elected, the delegates will turn up in Canberra and you'll have the same debate. Some will be in favour of turning off grog, some will be against turning off grog. Some in favour of the basics card, some against the basics card. We spend all this money and we've got the same debate. So let's just have the debate among the existing players, all of whom are known. They've all been public figures for decades. But we could have a more serious debate about what it will take to save children presently in big strife in Northern Australia. Now, that honest conversation does not need a whole new political architecture. In fact, we'll never have that, prompt, that honest debate if we build uh, Albanese's voice. Yeah, well, I'm, I just want to stick on that point for now um, about the politicking, though. When you were in Parliament, did this kind of legislative horse trading, was it, was it not as bad in those days? Because it's certainly become bad now, hasn't it? Sure, but uh, that's the stuff of politics. I mean, uh, you know, say, uh, as a minister, I would try and get a bill through, through the House. That was easy. You had the numbers. But once you got to the Senate... If you didn't have a majority, you'd have to work with other senators. You sit down and you would have to negotiate. They'd knock bits off it. That's, that's a proper process. Now, it may be messy now because there are more independents and other types sitting in the Senate. My point is, if you have this new Aboriginal caucus, this advisory group, they'll have a lot of power. They'll have the power to disrupt legislation and they'll deal with senators there to do precisely that, and the senators will give them something in return. You know, another program here, another piece of money there, and, and away we go. It's like having an extra couple of senators. But it's no way to, it's no way to run a country, is it? Just this horse trading over, over legislation. I mean, what, what we're in, we've got enough problems already with crossbenchers calling the shots on important aspects to the way our countries run. And we're going to, into that problematic mix, we're going to throw this, this panel that only represents a small percentage of the population. Yeah, quite right. And it all costs money, okay? So politicians 
inevitably say, what's it going to cost me to get my bill through? And then they pay off that interest. That's, I'm not saying that's corrupt at all. That's just the way it operates. Now, uh, so these new Aboriginal delegates come along and say, well, I would like to do X, Y and Z. Give me some more infrastructure. Give me another program. Put me on another committee. It doesn't solve problems. All it allow that group to extract a bit more money. And by the way, they've been pretty successful, Aboriginal leaders, in the last 30 years in extracting money. I'd like to have a discussion that says, one, to Aboriginal leaders, what's your contribution to the Commonwealth? Eh? How are your people making uh, common wealth for all Australians and not just asking us to pay the rent? And then two, how come 80% of Aboriginal people are doing just about as well as every other Australian? and 20% are not. What is it that's happening to the 20%? Well, pretty easy. They are more cultural. They're sitting on uh, remote areas on collective title and they need a way out. And you, Aboriginal leaders, are not showing them how you got out. That, that, that's what I find most appalling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, the overarching narrative here is that that 20% of our indigenous population either cannot or, or should not become fully integrated members of our society and become democratically equal to the rest of us. But we're never told why. Why can't they, Gary? Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? I, I, I think the ideas that should never have escaped, universities have now escaped, right? And the, and the big idea is that your, your race, and your culture and your spirituality, you see how the language becomes more and more blown, is more important than your common humanity and more important than our shared humanity, right? This is classic postmodern stuff. It says, now, most important bit of your life, pal, is your Aboriginality. Forget about that we're all human beings and forget about you as an individual. Forget about all that, you're an Aboriginal person. So. What do those East Coast academics need? They need identifiable Aborigines sitting somewhere else in Australia. That's your 20%. They're sitting in Northern Australia. They're dying young. But they are the poster children, if you like, of this postmodern madness that says your identity is more powerful than our common humanity. And it also ignores the individual and their weaknesses and strengths, because if you're going to help a poor person, there's only one person can really help. That's the individual. Ultimately, you know, they're going to have to work it out with assistance, how to go to school, how to study hard, how to hold down a job, and all the rest of it. Well, we, are, we celebrate a lot of Aboriginal culture, and some of it is great. It's unique to this nation. It's unique, unique to this continent, I should say. And, uh, you know, the art and the dance and, you know, the languages, you know, they're worth preserving and celebrating. But what parts of Aboriginal culture, in your opinion, are actually holding our Indigenous brothers and sisters back? Well, the key one is uh, what's called demand sharing. So in, in, a, in a tribal society, in a society uh, where you, you hunt and gather your food daily, of course you work collectively. And if you're not successful one day, you rely on someone else in the family who was successful in the hunt. So you literally have an obligation, a very strong demand on everyone else to share. 
It doesn't work too well in our society. One person gets a good job and then, you know, 30 others suddenly become close members of the family and they just demand. Now, that is called humbugging too. That is, is just uh, endemic in Northern Australia where whoever creeps up, gets a job, starts to do well, just has a whole group of people around them, pulling them down. Now, you know, leftists think this is wonderful, socialism, blah, 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 blah. I've spoken to so many Aboriginal people in the last three decades who say this is, among other things, is what's killing us. You just can't get ahead. And the other way to break that is literally to walk away from it, say we're not doing that. The other parts are payback, you know. If, mm. if someone in my dies, they have to blame someone who was caring for them because there's just an ignorance about medical science. So payback, humbugging, sorcery is very strong in Northern Australia. I mean, how can this be seen as a good thing in, in, modern, in the modern world? No, it can't. Uh, it, yeah, it, you're right. It, it, it's it, evil, it's wrong, and there's a relearning. Culture is a burden. This sort mm. of culture is a burden to people and it prevents them from coming into the open society. You're right in calling it evil, Gary. I mean, these are the things that are preventing these, uh, these seriously disadvantaged people um, from uh, lifting themselves out of some of the worst conditions anywhere in the world. There's one other aspect, Gary, that I think you might have an opinion on, and that's this idea of caring for country. I mean, this is a really convenient one for the left because it conforms with the sort of modern green ideal of humans living in harmony with nature and, the, you know, the Rousseauian idea of the noble savage and so on. But is it really true that traditional Indigenous culture had this kind of harmonious existence with nature? Not at all. No, uh, that, that's a plant from the 1980s by, by Greenies. Um, what occurred, of course, is that while many Aboriginal people had significant knowledge about their immediate environment and the seasons and so on, if they went hunting, for instance, they might burn out part of a forest for two reasons. One, you scare animals out and it's easy to catch and kill. Uh, but two, it also kept the forest cover down so it's just easy to see your enemies, for instance. So it had a logic to it, nothing to do with saving the environment. And much of Australia's sort of vegetation was changed by 50,000 years of burning and, and hunting. Uh, there was no plan to... Uh, preserve the environment. It was simply unknown to Aboriginal people. They just did what any of us would do in those circumstances, just thought about the immediate circumstances of feeding. Which is what hunter-gatherers do. It's a daily, daily struggle to survive. But just getting back to the voice, which is the issue at hand now, as you alluded to earlier, Gary, there are a lot of Indigenous people, especially women and children in outback communities, who desperately need our help. Now, the voice will add nothing to our ability to help them. But apart from those desperate people, is there any reason to treat Indigenous citizens as different from the rest of us? There isn't, except in one respect now, or a couple of respects. Uh, recognise a better way has, has, has the three-point plan, classically, you know. But the first one is to say, OK, there is a conversation about recognising a pre-existing people. 
I think you can put that, arguably, put that in a, a preamble of the Constitution, but it's an historic recognition, not a recognition of a present people. The second one's really important. There is, by law, Commonwealth law, a thing called native title. Native title holders have a special relationship with the Commonwealth under law. They're often the people most in trouble, okay? So a parliamentary committee can manage that discussion between all Australians, the Parliament, and native title holders. That's the one we want to open up on. That's the real deal. And then thirdly, just work with existing Aboriginal organisations. You know, uh, Aboriginal people are the most organised group in the country, politically. They are very astute. They've all got their political relations uh, they're knocking on the doors of state polys, federal polys all the time. They know heads of departments. They've got lots of contracts. Why the hell would you put another lot on top? And I tell you where we're getting much support from native title holders who are saying, whoa, hang on, we, we know our politics, we've done our deals, we've got our relationship. Who's this new mob? They're going to come in over the top of us and knock us down a peg. You see what I mean? Yeah, and maybe, yeah. And maybe upset all of our political relations. So it native sounds, title holders... It sounds like a high-level like, version of humbugging to me, mate. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Is the tide turning on The Voice, you reckon? Is the, 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 the momentum for no starting to uh, gather pace? Look, yes, but let's not overstate it. What, what's happening is that most Australians don't know much about this at all. So they say to the pollster, are you in favour of the voice? Uh, and they hear motherhood, motherhood, yes. Okay? That's at about 55 60%. If, if that's the starting point, then the yes case is in big trouble. Because by the time we be begin to explain what the voice means, i.e. that it's just politics, and that close behind it comes a treaty, and then behind that becomes this beast called truth-telling, which will just be one side of the story, then I think once people get the idea that if you vote for the voice, then you get voice, treaty and truth, and together it's, it's a big... Then I think the whole thing will collapse pretty quickly, uh, and I'd actually like to see an extraordinary rebuff during the referendum, like a really low vote, so that we can start a whole new conversation with the Aboriginal leadership to say, all right now, girls and boys, how about we get down and solve the problems of the last 20% and not keep talking about you, you East Coast well-off leaders. Well said, well said. And just seeing it from Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's perspective, if it does fall over, and dramatically as you hope it will, what effect will that have on his leadership? I think uh, his, his leftist mates, remember, he's just, he's just an inner city lefty, uh, will be very angry with him, but they'll blame the Liberals. They'll blame, you know, Peter Dutton, blah, 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 blah. Yes, of course. Uh, what will determine Albanese's long-term future, though, is how that government manages the wider issues, i.e. energy prices, inflation, superannuation, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it'll lock uh, some chips off him. Uh, but then we'll 
see what he's like as an actual prime minister and not just a, an inner city muck around who goes out and, you know, does all the dancing and the street walking and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe he'll just discard it like a broken toy and move on. Gary Johns, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's former Labor Minister Gary Johns and author of the book, The Burden of Culture, which I highly recommend. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is up next at eight o'clock and I'll see you tomorrow night at seven. Good night.